Today's sermon comes from 1 Samuel 24 to 26, so please go ahead and turn there with me in a Bible, 1 Samuel 24. If you're using the Bible that's in the the chairs in front of you, uh, it's on page 255. We've been going through this series in the book of Samuel, which tells the story, the history of how God was at work with his people during this stage where they were forming into an official nation. Uh, It's centered around three main characters. It opens with some chapters on Samuel, the prophets, and then God's people wanted a king, and so he gave them what they asked for, gave them King Saul, Uh, but Saul was rebelling against God, seeking his own way. God rejects him and chooses then a man after his own heart, David, who would be the second king of Israel. But there's this long time of transition between the two where the rest of 1 Samuel, we see Saul's decline. Uh, And we see David actually on the rise. Uh, David's anointed to be king in 1 Samuel 16, but it is 15 years later, 20 chapters later, before David actually becomes the king. And and it's it's not just 15 years of waiting. It's 15 years of, of Saul's anger with David, and at least some of those years where Saul is trying to kill David. You remember, that's where we left David last time we were in this series, chapters 21 to 23. David was on the run, literally running for his life. Uh, he ran to his enemies, the Philistines, thinking that's safer than Saul. And so he's there in, in Gath, and the Philistines turn on him. So he escapes there, and he ends up in this cave. He's hiding in this cave. As, as men start to gather around him, he forms, forms this group. Then, then they're wandering around and, and, and fleeing and escaping, and we, we followed them as they ended up in chapter 23 in the wilderness. That's where we left David last time. He was in the wilderness. Saul was just about to get him, coming around this mountain. But then Saul got called away because of another conflict with the Philistines. But in chapters 23 to 26, the word wilderness shows up 12 times. Do you know what a wilderness is? When I think of wilderness, I imagine a forest. But in Israel, the wilderness was a desert Wilderness just means it comes from that root wild or untamed, uninhabited. And so so just to get this setting in your mind, what's coming up over and over again, 12 times in these four chapters, the narrator, the author here, mentions and reminds us this is all happening to David where? In the wilderness. And it's not just to give us a mental image of, of where these events were happening, because wilderness has theological implications. It already meant things to God's people. This would have called to their mind the symbolism, the imagery of, of God's people as they wandered 40 years in the wilderness, waiting to enter the promised land. And so the wilderness is dry, it's barren, it's a place of suffering and difficulty, but it also meant to God's people a place of testing and temptation. When they, when they hear wilderness, they would have thought of testing. How do we know that? Deuteronomy 8 verse 2 says, Remember 
that the Lord your God led you on the entire journey these 40 years in the wilderness. Why? So that he might humble you and test you to know what was in your heart, whether or not you would keep his commands. Later in the New Testament, they would refer back to this as well. Hebrews chapter three, verses seven and eight says, today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts as in the rebellion on the day of testing in the wilderness. In 1 Corinthians 10, five to 13, Paul is, is actually teaching us how to handle sin's temptations that come. And he says, God has given you with the temptation a way of escape. But right before he says that, he calls to mind this scene of the wilderness. And he says that this was written for us as an example to us. And so these wilderness exploits that we read about in the Old Testament are given to us as an example also of how to respond to testing and temptation. And probably already in your mind you've thought, well, Jesus also was tempted in the wilderness. Luke 4, 1 and 2 says Jesus left Jordan full of the Holy Spirit and was led by the Spirit in the wilderness for 40 days to be tempted by the devil. So with this theological background in our mind, we're, we're now thinking, what's, what's wilderness? What, these four chapters where the narrator is reminding us over and over and over again, 12 times, this is all happening in the wilderness. It should tip us off for some things to expect some things to look for, some themes. We should expect that David is suffering in a dry and weary and desperate land, that he is, he's desperately dependent and needy right now in the wilderness, in the desert, that he's suffering, that he's waiting, that this is a time, like God's people before, that he's waiting for the promise. But not just that, we should also expect David's going to experience testing and temptation. And so here's the question as we look at these three chapters. How does David stand up to the testing? How does he stand up in these wilderness years, the testing in the wilderness? So let's look at chapter 24, verse 1. When Saul returned from pursuing the Philistines, he was told, David is in the wilderness near Engedi. So Saul took 3,000 of Israel's fit young men and he went to look for David and his men in front of the rocks of the wild goats. When Saul came to the sheep pens along the road, a cave was there and he went in to relieve himself. David and his men were staying in the recesses of the cave. So they said to him, look, this is the day the Lord told you about when he said, I will hand your enemy over to you so you can do to him whatever you desire. David got up and secretly cut off the corner of Saul's robe. Afterward, David's conscience bothered him because he'd cut off the corner of Saul's robe. He said to his men, as the Lord is my witness, I would never do such a thing to my Lord, the Lord's anointed. I will never lift my hand against him since he is the Lord's anointed. With these words, David persuaded his men, and he did not let them rise up against Saul. Then Saul left the cave and went on his way. After that, David got up and went out the cave, and he called to Saul. 
my lord, the king. When Saul looked behind him, David knelt low with his face to the ground and paid homage. David said to Saul, why do you listen to the words of people who say, look, David intends to harm you? You can see with your own eyes, the Lord handed you over to me today in the cave. Someone advised me to kill you, but I took pity on you and said, I won't lift my hand against the Lord since he is the Lord's anointed. Look, my father, look at the corner of your robe that's in my hand, for I cut it off, but I did not kill you. Recognize that I've committed no crime or rebellion. I've, I haven't sinned against you, even though you are hunting me down to take my life. If you grew up in the church, you likely heard this story in Sunday school. Maybe it's really familiar to you. But try to imagine this with a fresh imagination that you're with David. You've been running. You're in this desert wilderness with this king and 3,000 men who are pursuing you and they're, they're wanting you dead. And either because you're hiding or you're, you're resting, you've, you've found this cave and you're all the way back in the back of the cave. And in walks Saul, the one who wants you dead. And he, he's alone and vulnerable. Disarms himself, disrobes himself, relieves himself. He's taking care of some bodily functions here in this cave likely then taking a nap as well because there's time here for David's men to be able to have this discussion and then David to sneak up on him and cut off a piece of his robe. If you're reading this for the first time, you expect, yeah, these guys are right. God has delivered Saul into your hands. He's, he's wanting you dead. And so here's the moment, David, where you can act they're seeing this. You can understand they're, they're salivating in this opportunity. It's, it's way too perfect of an opportunity. The one cave we're in, he comes walking in and he's alone and he's completely vulnerable. And so they're saying, David, kill him. And so David sneaks up and cuts. And if you're reading this the first time, you might expect him to say, cuts off his head like he did with Goliath. But no, he cuts off a corner of his robe. But even that bothered David's conscience. I think that tells us there's, there's more symbolism going on with cutting off a piece of that robe than, than just that he would have caused some, some kind of harm to Saul's garment. The, the robe was symbolic of, of Saul's kingdom, of his rule, of his reign. And likely here, David cutting that off and grasping a piece of this is to, to show, not, not just to show Saul, I could have killed you, but also your kingdom is being taken from you. And so in David's heart, his conscience was plaguing him, bothering him. Why? Why did he see this as wrong? Why did he think it was wrong here to kill Saul? Well, I think it seems to imply to us that this promise that his men were telling him about never actually happened. We don't read about this anywhere that, that God told David, you're gonna be, I'm gonna deliver Saul into your hands to kill you. So I think his men are, are kind of conjuring up, they're reading into some things here. But, but what David says is this isn't providential victory. This is a providential test. And the way he responds is saying, no, this is the Lord's anointed in verse six. He says it again in verse six. I will never lift my hand against him. Why? Since he is the Lord's anointed. Verse 12, 
May the Lord judge between me and you, he says to Saul. May the Lord take vengeance on you for me, but my hand will never be against you. So David's saying, Saul is still the Lord's anointed. God has promised that I will be king, but he hasn't yet given me that. And it's not mine to grasp. Where God has me right now is in a time of waiting. Not, not to skip this suffering and seize the crown. That's what would have happened. If David had killed Saul, no more wilderness. No more desert. No more running for his life. He would be king. But he would, he would be seizing that crown without enduring the cross without going through what God had for him in this stage. He'd be taking matters into his own hands, bringing vengeance his own way, accomplishing what he wanted in his own way rather than entrusting himself to God. In verse 15, this is what David does, though. He, He puts himself completely in God's hands. He says, may the Lord be judge and decide between me and you. May he take notice and plead my case and deliver me from you. When you're in the wilderness, one of the temptations is to try to get out by any means necessary. To look for relief, to look for escape, even in godless ways. To, to take the, the remote and click ahead through the suffering. Fast forward through the pain and the suffering of this life and skip ahead to what looks like a better life. Or to, to look to numb the pain in godless ways. Maybe your friends even counsel you this way. God just wants you to be happy. So live your own truth. Pursue your own happiness. Look to get out of the wilderness by any means necessary, even if it means going against God. He just wants you to be happy. This is, this is a dominant theme that we're tempted with, that we're, we're plagued with, to, to skip ahead of the suffering that God has called us to right now. But in this first test, David passes. Maybe wavering at first, in, in showing some, some wavering by cutting off Saul's robe there. But yet he does pass. He does entrust himself to the Lord. At the end, here's what Saul says in verse 20. Now, I know for certain you will be king. The kingdom of Israel will be established in your hand. Therefore, swear to me by the Lord that you will not cut off my descendants or wipe out my name from my father's, from my father's family. So David swore to Saul. Saul went back home. David and his men went up to the stronghold. So Saul's not, David's not going back with Saul. He doesn't trust him here. But yet they, they do part ways. He's past test number one. Chapter 25 opens by saying Samuel died. All Israel assembled to mourn for him. So here's a transition moment. They buried him by his home in Ramah. But then here again, Narrator is showing us David's still in the wilderness. David went down to the wilderness of Paran. And here in this second story, David doesn't fare quite as well. Let's start reading 
and see how David does in this test. Verse two, a man in Maon had a business in Carmel. He was a very rich man with 3,000 sheep, 1,000 goats, and he was shearing his sheep in Carmel. The man's name was Nabal. His wife's name, Abigail. The woman was intelligent and beautiful. But the man, a Calebite, was harsh and evil in his dealings. Okay, so here's how we're introduced to these characters. Harsh, evil man, intelligent, beautiful wife. When David was in the wilderness, he heard that Nabal was shearing sheep. So David sent 10 young men instructing them, go up to Carmel. When you come to Nabal, greet him in my name. Then say this, long life to you and peace to you and peace to your family and peace to all that is yours. I hear that you are shearing. When your shepherds were with us, we did not harass them. Nothing of theirs was missing the whole time they were in Carmel. Ask your young men and they will tell you. So let my young men find favor with you, for we have come on a feast day. Please give me whatever you have on hand to your servants and to your son, David. David's young men went and said all these things to Nabal on David's behalf, and they waited. Nabal asked them, Who's David? Who is Jesse's son? Many slaves these days are running away from their masters. Am I supposed to take my bread, my water, my meat that I butchered for my shearers and give them to these men? I don't know where they're from. David's young men retraced their steps. And when they returned to him, they reported all these words. He said to his men, all of you, put on your swords. So each man put on his sword and David also put on his sword. About 400 men followed David, while 200 stayed with the supplies. So in this story, David is mistreated. They've been in the wilderness, and while they're there, they've, they've offered a service to these shepherds. They've protected them from animals or from thieves or other harm that would come to them. And, and, and they didn't do any mistreating of the shepherds while they're there. And so they're, they're thinking, we've acted in goodwill, good favor toward Nabal and his shepherds. So let's go see if he will return the favor and share some of his food with us. But Nabal screams at them. We didn't read that yet, but we will later. He screams at them. He insults them. David finds out and he's fuming. You've been mad before, probably never this mad. Never mad enough to say, let's get our swords and let's go kill them all. This is how David responds. Let's, let's wipe them out. In verse 21, David says, I guarded everything that belonged to this man in the wilderness for nothing. He was not missing anything, yet he paid me back evil for good. May God Punish me and do so severely if I let any of his males survive until morning. In chapter 24, David was the one restraining his men, saying, no, do not kill Saul. Here, David's the one ready to do the killing. He is the one who needs restraining. He is the one who's maybe not prepared to deal with this temptation, Maybe he was ready. He had already thought, someday I might be faced with Saul. How am I going to respond? But this one caught him off guard. This isn't God's anointed king. This is just some rich 
fool who's now treating me harshly, and so David is about to blow it. Let's read verse 14. One of Nabal's young men informed Abigail, Nabal's wife, look, David sent messengers from the wilderness to greet our master, but he screamed at them. The men treated us very well. When we were in the field, we weren't harassed and nothing of ours was missing the whole time we were living among them. They were a wall around us both day and night the entire time we were with them herding the sheep. Now consider carefully what you should do because there is certain to be trouble for our master and his entire family. He's such a worthless fool. Nobody can talk to him. So this servant hears what's happening. He knows he can't go talk to Nabal, so he goes to Abigail. He's pleading with her. Here's how she responds. Abigail hurried, taking 200 loaves of bread, two jars Two clay jars of wine, five butchered sheep, a bushel of roasted grain, a hundred clusters of raisins, 200 cakes of pressed figs, loaded them onto donkeys, and then said to her male servants, go ahead of me, I'll be right behind you. But she did not tell her husband, Nabal. As she rode the donkey down a mountain pass hidden from view, she saw David and his men coming toward her and met them. David had just said, so here's, here's the quote, here's the line where he's rallying the troops. This is when it happens. Right as Abigail's about to meet him, David has just given this pep talk saying, no prisoners, everyone dead, none of them live until the morning. You can just kind of see them all going, yeah, let's get them. And that's when Abe, Abigail rides up. She, in that moment, they could have killed her like that. Or worse, Abigail saw David. She quickly got off the donkey, knelt, knelt down with her face to the ground and paid homage to David. She knelt at his feet and said, the guilt is mine, my Lord. Please let your servant speak to you directly. Listen to the words of your servant. My Lord should pay no attention to this worthless fool, Nabal, he lives up to his name. His name means stupid. And stupidity is all he knows. I, your servant, didn't see my Lord's young men whom you sent. Now, my Lord, as surely as the Lord lives and as you yourself live, it is the Lord who kept you from participating in bloodshed and avenging yourself by your own hand. May your enemies... And those who intend to harm my Lord be like Nabal. Let this gift your servant has brought to my Lord be given to the young men who follow my Lord. Over and over and over again. It's almost awkward to read how she keeps referring to him in this reverential way as, as my Lord. She says, please forgive your servant's offense. For the Lord is certain to make a lasting dynasty for my Lord because he fights the Lord's battles. Throughout your life, may evil not be found in you. Someone is pursuing you and intends to take your life. My Lord's life is tucked safely in the place where the Lord your God protects the living. He is flinging away your enemies' lives like stones from a sling. 
When the Lord does for my Lord all the good he promised you and appoints you ruler over Israel, there will not be remorse or a troubled conscience for my Lord because of needless bloodshed or my Lord's revenge. And when the Lord does good things for my Lord, may you remember me, your servant. Then David said to Abigail, Blessed be the Lord God of Israel, who sent you to meet me today. May your discernment be blessed, and may you be blessed. Today you kept me from participating in bloodshed and avenging myself by my own hand. Otherwise, as surely as the Lord God of Israel lives who prevented me from harming you, if you had not come quickly to meet me, Nabal wouldn't have any males left by morning light. Then David accepted what she had brought him and said, go home in peace. See, I have heard what you said and I've granted your request. Four times, four times in this section, we are told that it is God. It's the Lord who's here restraining David from committing this evil, who's keeping David from, from blowing it big time here. Look at verse 26. This is Abigail who says, it's the Lord, she's speaking to David, it's the Lord who kept you from participating in bloodshed and avenging yourself by your own hand. In verse 32 and 33, David says, God sent you to me today. Today you've kept me from participating in bloodshed and avenging myself by my own hand. In verse 34, he says it again, the Lord prevented me from harming you. Verse 39, blessed be the Lord. He's restrained his servant from doing evil. We're told very clearly that behind the scenes, God's providence is again at work here. And in this case, he's protecting David from his own sinful desires. He's restraining him from evil. But how does he do it? From a human perspective, Abigail is lifted up as the hero of this story. Her courage, her discernment, it opens up by describing her. The narrator is tipping us off from the very beginning. She's the good guy. Her husband's the bad guy. She's intelligent and beautiful. He's harsh and evil. When she hears this, she doesn't wait. She hurries. So she acts with courage and she acts with speed. She acts with discernment. You might be wondering, what about going against her husband? But, but yet clearly this passage is painting that what she did was right the Bible does teach for, for wives to, to submit to their husbands, laying down some of their own preferences, for husbands to sacrificially love their wives. But, but here's one of those places in the Bible where we're reminded there's a higher authority than any of our human authorities, any of our human relationships. There's, there's a higher authority that we submit to, that we follow. Wives, there are times when it is right and good and even in your husband's best interest to, to stand up to him, to, to push against him, to, to, in a sense, usurp his evil desires 
for his own good and the, the good and protection of others. And here, this is what Abigail's doing. She's actually acting in Nabal's best interest and in a sense, protecting him from what David was about to do, protecting him from his own stupidity and foolishness. She's, she's acting wisely and in discernment. This week we were discussing this and, and Patrick, just, Patrick Haven said, how many times do our wives, just in a practical way, save our lives? When you're driving down the road and you don't, you're not paying attention to the stoplight and your wife just kind of says, do you see that? And, and maybe, maybe in our spirit then we're like, of course, of course I see that. And we respond with some annoyance. But yet some of those times we didn't and it saves our lives, literally, or someone else's that we would have hit. And, and probably countless other ways but it's more than that. Maybe it's areas of dishonesty that we're creeping toward or lust or anger or harsh ways that we've spoken to our kids or to our friends or to others. There are times when, it is, when we need, we need our wives to, to push against us, to stand up to us, to, to, to show us and point out the evil ways that we are heading and husbands, just to take this a step further, if you want to be a good leader in your home, you should welcome this. You should encourage this. You should invite this. You should create a safe culture in, in your relationship where, where you admit and acknowledge, I need my wife to speak this way to me, to, to correct me, to encourage me, to point out ways that I'm falling. And, and of course, we can all realize this isn't just Husbands and wives, wives need this too, kids need this too. We all need this in all of our relationships to, to welcome and to be ready for, for people to point out ways that we're acting in, in foolishness that's going to lead to our destruction. The, the main thing going on here is actually not Abigail correcting Nabal. The main thing here is Abigail correcting David as she comes up to this angry, bloodthirsty crowd of 400 men, and she begins to appeal to David. How does she do it? Flip, flip the, the camera lens around now and imagine yourself as David. You're angry. You're about to give in to this anger. What would help you? What is it that, that caused him to relent? What does Abigail say? Look at verse 31. She warns David of the consequences of sin, the remorse, the troubled conscience because of needless bloodshed and revenge. So she's, she's warning him that you go this path. You're going to be plagued by remorse and a troubled conscience and this will haunt you. She's warning the consequences of sin, the bloodshed, the revenge, but before she does that, she does something else. She elevates before David God, his promises, his goodness, showing him, David, God's way is better. She, look at verse 28. She says, the Lord is certain to make a lasting dynasty for you. 
Someone's pursuing you, verse 29, intends to take your life. But your life, David, is tucked safely in the place where the Lord, your God, protects the living. He's flinging away your enemies like stones from a sling. Wouldn't that have hit David right in the heart? That image of how God is protecting him, like just flinging, easily flinging away your enemies. She's saying to him, David, this this is who your God is. When the Lord does for you all the good that he promised you and he appoints you ruler over Israel, she's, she's reminding him, David, God has made these promises to you and it is good. It's surpassingly good to follow him, to trust him, to entrust yourself to him. Don't bring this vengeance Don't take matters into your own hands. Don't act upon your anger here because there's something way better. It will bring you more joy to trust God and to follow him. This is what we need when we're tempted in the wilderness. We need to be reminded of the the vanity of this world the consequences of sin, the the emptiness of what we're chasing after, that it will not satisfy. But we also need elevated in front of our eyes something of surpassing worth and value. God's way is better. He is better. So we delight in him. We, We worship him. Thomas Chalmers in the 1800s wrote on the expulsive power of a new affection. He says that there there are two ways in which to displace or to to cast out from our hearts a love for this world. And here's what they are, the two ways. Either a demonstration of the world's vanity or by setting forth another object, even God, as more worthy of its attachment. And, And in this sermon or lecture that he's given, he leans toward that second. That's what he's actually elevating. He's saying just warning of the vanity of this world and the consequences isn't enough. What we need to displace or expel from our hearts a love for this world is to love something even more. To to lift up in front of our eyes Christ. 2 Corinthians 3, like we were singing about earlier, to behold our God. And it's by beholding him that he transforms us from one degree of glory to another. When when we're more attracted to something else, when, when a love for Christ, a love for God, a love for the goodness of God, the goodness of his ways, when that becomes dominant in our hearts, then we see that's more appealing than to choose this other way. Abigail went to Nabal, verse 36. He was there in his house holding a feast fit for a king. She's just saved his life and he's drunk and partying so she doesn't do anything that night. The next morning when he sobered up, his wife told him about these events and his heart died. He became like a stone. I don't know if this is describing a stroke or something. Ten days later, the Lord struck Nabal dead. When David heard that Nabal was dead, he said, blessed be the Lord who championed my cause against Nabal's insults and restrained his servant from doing evil. The Lord brought Nabal's evil deeds back on his own head. 
not gonna read it, but you can maybe see in the section in your Bible what's next. David takes her to be his wife, takes another lady to be his wife. He's not, he's not perfect. The Lord's restrained him from this, these murders. The Bible doesn't comment on this here, but we're, we're seeing glimpses of what's coming later for David. He's not living, he's not escaping this wilderness perfect. But he comes now to another test in chapter 26, but it's the same test as the first one. The main difference is we just see David a little bit stronger even in his faith. In verse seven, there's another time here where David is able to kill Saul. Verse seven of 26, that night David and Abishai came to the troops David, and Saul was lying there asleep in the inner circle of the camp with his spear stuck in the ground by his head. Abner and the troops were lying around him. Then Abishai said to David, look, today God has delivered your enemy to you. Let me thrust the spear through him into the ground just once. I won't even have to strike him twice. But here's where you can hear just a little more resolve, a little more trust, a little more faith. In verse nine, David says to Abishai, don't destroy him. Who can lift a hand against the Lord's anointed and be innocent? David added, as the Lord lives, the Lord will certainly strike him down either. His day will come and he will die or he will go into battle and perish. However, as the Lord is my witness, I will never lift my hand against the Lord's anointed. Instead, take his spear and the water jug by his head and let's go. And so then they do the same act where from a distance calls out to Saul, look, I've got your spear, I've got your water. I didn't kill you. Saul weeps, expresses remorse, appreciation that he's not dead, promises to David, okay, I'm not going to chase you anymore. Come home. David doesn't trust him. He does not go home. They continue to part ways. And as far as we know, never see each other again. But in verse 24, David again entrusts himself to the Lord. He says, so may the Lord consider my life valuable and rescue me from all trouble. So David seems to have even more resolve here. He can kill Saul again. His guy who's there with him, partner in crime, is there. And Abishai's like, let me kill him. Just gonna take once. I won't even have to hit him twice. Uh, And David says, no, God will take care of this. Either he's just gonna get old and die, or he's gonna go into battle and he will die early. There's, there's some way, I don't know how God's going to deliver me. I don't know what the future will be, but I know what my present is supposed to be right now. I don't know how God will deliver me, but I know I'm supposed to trust him. I'm not supposed to take things into my own hands. And so David once again entrusts himself to God here in the wilderness. You'll face times that feel like a wilderness, times of waiting, desperation, suffering, that can feel like it drags on for a long time, and you might be tempted in that moment to escape. Everything in you just wants the promised land, wants the easy life. Even so much that it's tempting to seize that in godless ways in evil ways, to just look for your own happiness, to look for your own satisfaction. 
but it might be that God's saying to you right now, it's not yet time for you to get out. Keep waiting, keep enduring, keep looking to me. And when those temptation comes, remind yourself of the, the consequences of sin and remind yourself of the greater good, the surpassing worth of following Jesus. Let that fill your hearts. Declare that to yourself over and over again until it just becomes a, a groove in your mind of, of this is what I believe Ask the Holy Spirit to, to give you a deeper faith that God is good, that his way is good, and that I can trust him as I wait. But just like David, we will fail. No one besides Jesus escapes the wilderness sinless. Jesus was tempted by the devil in the wilderness. Oh, just make yourself bread. Don't, don't look to God to provide for you. Provide for yourself in your own way. Oh, you want these kingdoms? Jesus, you want to rule? Here's how you can do it without going through the cross. Just bow down to me. Jesus was, was tempted by the devil to seize the crown without enduring the cross, yet he was sinless. What we can't do, what we don't do, he did in our place. And meditating on that is another one of these ways that helps expel within us the desire to choose our own way. We look to him. We trust him. He will cause us to persevere. Let's pray.